This episode is brought to you by CEP Compression Australia. CEP Compression Apparel gives the user more energy, greater endurance, and enhanced performance during activities. For a discount at CEP, use the following code online, local legends in running. Welcome to the Local Legends in Running podcast, where you hear the stories of local legends in the Australian running community that you've simply always wanted to hear. Tim is the first Victorian-based guest on the podcast. His experience and knowledge in the sport of running is vast. He has been an athlete, elite coach, commentator, recreational coach, course facilitator, course measurer, community promoter, event director. The list is literally endless. Now, I caught Tim in his lunch break between a course he was facilitating in the Northern Territory, Darwin it was, showing his clear generosity of time. He speaks at length about his experiences in the sport with a focus on the marathon, coaching, training schedules, running footwear, and females in running. Tim, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Just sitting outside of Marara Stadium here. It's a bit hot and steamy. Yeah, up in Darwin right now, right? Yeah, yeah. So this one was sort of the reason I sort of didn't get in touch earlier. This was sort of on again, off again. We weren't sure if it was going to go ahead. So I'm delivering a. I did a seminar on Friday night, uh, just sort of to get a picture of the rec running scene in, in NT in Darwin and Athletics Northern Territory. And then yesterday was a level one rec running course and today's level two rec running course. And we've got uh, 16 and 16 in these courses. This is huge for, for NT to have those numbers. It's really, really good. Oh, that is fantastic. And that was actually my first question asking you about why you're up there. So it's good to see you are spreading all things running around that area. Certainly am. And uh, yeah, it's also, I suppose, part of the, the broader mission that I've got uh, in the sport in general. So, you know, even though I'm employed by Athletics Victoria, uh, I do do work for the Indigenous Marathon Foundation and also for Athletics Australia as sort of this outreach into broader communities. Uh, and uh, I absolutely love this part of my job. Nothing better than coming up here and having 16 runners in a room talking about running. 
Oh, that, that's really good, Tim. Hey, uh, you're the first Victorian on this podcast. So how do you feel, for starters, being a Victorian on here on a Queensland-based podcast? Well, you know, I'm very parochial, parochial about Victoria. We are, I suppose, the epicentre of running in, in Australia. So, gee, you're a bit behind the... And to get me first, I think that, well, it's a great honour, but gee, you could have had an honour or something like that <laughs> before me. Yeah, I'm still working on that one. Hey, mate, uh, a few years ago, probably about five years ago, you may recall I was actually in front of you. You were facilitating a, I think, a level two advanced, if I call it recreational advanced running course. Is that the right title? That uh, you yes, put that myself one. through and a handful of Brisbane coaches at, at uh, CUSAC. Do you recall that? I certainly do with Benita, I think, as well. That was a really good little group, that one. Yeah, well, basically what we're, we're looking at at the moment through the whole of uh, coach education is trying to make it relevant to uh, the individual skills and, and the desires and the wants of our coaches because all coaches, like all runners, are very different. And we're sort of realising that uh, there's no straight and narrow path for coach education and we'd like to be introducing more flexibility and more variability into the coach ed. So that whole concept about having level ones, level twos, level threes, uh, we're trying to move away from that. And, you know, you as a coach... Can go in a direction that suits your coach you know you may not be interested in doing uh, strength and conditioning it might not be what you do as a coach but if you do have an interest in that we will have a module for it you know you might uh, find that suddenly you've had a an ultra runner drop into your lap you've never had an experience of that but we'll have a, a module on ultra running uh, and that's the way we want to sort of do it that we instead of prescribing uh, that at level two you must learn this 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 and this no, it's really what you, you know, how you are going to shape your coaching as to what you learn and, and what modules you pick up along the way. Well, it seems like great flexibility. And uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed that course, Tim. Uh, you and Benita Willis were there in front of us and to have uh, you two fly up to Queensland in Brisbane to run that course was definitely a really good experience. So, yeah, I do recommend yeah. it highly for those looking to upskill, get a hold of AA um, or whatever your state athletics brand is and do a course now we had the well cross country champs uh, yesterday down in bathurst now you've had a bit of involvement leading up to that Are you happy to talk about uh your part of the course design and where that's ended up for you yeah well, basically i was brought in you know ironically when we first australia first bid for this we were the only bidder um athletics australia put in a bid to do the the world cross and um Athletics, I work at Athletics Victoria, that's my full-time job, which is uh, in Athletics House in Melbourne. Athletics Australia are one level above us in Athletics House in, in Melbourne, so we're, we're sort of working within the same facility. Um, when we put in the original bid for the World Cross, um, the desire was to take it to Bathurst, uh, to take it west of Sydney. Uh, I'd never been to Bathurst in my life, uh, and I was asked uh, very quickly to come up with a course uh, were AA going to send me to Bathurst to map out a course? No, I had to use Google Maps. So <laughs> I came up with something. Uh, it was submitted to World Apps and the original bid was actually knocked back, for, I think, for multiple reasons. But eventually we did get up and the World Cross was going to come to Australia. I think originally it was going to be in April of 2021. So this is about 2019 that we were working on all of this. And then subsequent to doing some of the initial work with, with AA, they did send me to Bathurst uh, with Ross Cunningham, who I worked with at Athletics Victoria. Yes. Ross had 
worked on the uh, World Cross winners in Edinburgh. He'd also worked on the World Cross winners in Jordan. So a natural pick in Australia to actually work on the World Cross and, and Ross was sort of leading the way. And um, I got quite heavily involved in the initial designs for the course that was used yesterday. As to how true they stay to the initial designs, I'm not too sure because uh, Ross was sort of, in some ways removed from that position a couple of years ago. And as a result, um, I think I was removed as well, but I was never told I was removed. I was just never contacted again about after being up to Bathurst three times and uh, trying to, to work as hard as we could on getting a good course up. So I think yesterday was fairly true to what we originally did. It might yes. not have been uh, the exact dimensions and design that we came up with. Yeah, very impressed with the course though, sort of moving through uh, vineyards tough. and then around tyres and up and down. I saw a mate run a 6K in some capacity out there, uh, older running friend. And uh, in 6K, he'd covered, I think, over 100 metres elevation. So it was quite hilly, but um, some great results out there. What do you make of the female and male races, particularly the uh, open races? Yeah, look, it was tough. And as we know, for the men's race, they had a windstorm basically come through. You know, it was always going to be dodging a bullet trying to run in Bathurst in February, as opposed to the original date being April. I think we we're going to be on safer ground there. But they had to go for February for various reasons, and conditions were, were horrendous, basically. So for those who got through it, and the attrition rate, particularly the junior women's race, actually, I think they've had one of the higher attrition rates. You know, we lost three of the Australian girls wow. out of that one because of the high temperatures. It's uh, It was not. And it's a nasty bit course because basically when you look at the constructive Bathurst it was either uphill or downhill so it was built on the side you know, on the car park <laughs> leading away from the pit buildings so it was all up then you dipped over the other side and then you had to work your way back through the vineyard and up and over again so there's no flat bits essentially apart from just a slight area leading into the vineyard from my memory it was a bit flat Apart from that, you're either going up or going down. And then with the addition of the tyres and the sand and a bit of water, it was it was a tough course, there's no doubt about it. The vineyard part was probably the most scenically attractive, yeah. and I think that was a nice addition to it. Apart from that, it was a grindy, old, dirty, dusty course. So different to Aarhus in Denmark, so, so different. Oh, yeah. I actually saw Jack Rayner take the wrong lane, like he was in the next yeah. sort of section of the vineyard, which was interesting, but uh, a very narrow passageway through there. I noticed some mud there too in a kind of a ditch. Was that purposeful yep. or was there rain to come through? That was there? purposeful, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think they just wanted some sort of water. And there was one area that we designated that we knew we could put water through there. Uh, and so that just added. But, you know, the bits of sand, they were also quite challenging. Sand's hard to run through, particularly on a nuggety course like that. So I'm not surprised that, um, you know, people are saying this is one of the toughest courses they've ever run, and particularly being a 2K circuit. You know, five laps of that is pretty damn tough. Yeah, but I guess in a way, good fun too. We need to really promote, I think, the elements of cross-country that uh, will oh, we pull uh, athletes and coaches towards it. And it's uh, it's got some excitement to it. You don't have to sort of compromise in your pacing and uh, the eventual result of your time, but uh, it, it's definitely an exciting thing. And uh, we've seen Kai Robinson come in first for the men yeah. and Ellie Pashley for the women. So what, what do you think sets aside them from the others right now in terms of how they're training and their attributes out there? I think, you know, putting my coaching hat on here, you, as the coaches of those two, you would have had to be aware of what the conditions are going to be like and train them appropriately. If you weren't prepared for a bit of heat and the dryness and dustiness, then you were going to melt out there. Yeah. Ali's a smart, I've known Ali for a long time. She's a smart runner. So she would have done a lot of work into what it's going to take to run well. You know, but you've got to give it to Leanne Pompiani. You know, Leanne 
you know, potentially could have been the first Australian, but uh, she obviously had that collapse just before the line. Leanne's a very gutsy runner and she yeah. wasn't going to hold back yesterday. She was saw this as a great opportunity to push herself forward uh, and she did that and obviously paid uh, within that last kilometre or so that Ali then came through because strategically she obviously ran a very good race. Uh, and uh, but you got to get context around Ali. What she gave birth seven months ago. So once again, it's one for the mothers, isn't it? The the, the oh, running women, yeah. the running mothers in Australia. They're just doing phenomenal stuff at the moment. And to see Ali come through to get that number one Australian spot was pretty damn impressive. Yeah, but for Kai though, it's just great because he's not the big name. You know, he's, he's actually had some great performances behind him. But to get the number one Australian spot in the World Cross in a truly, you know, that was a very strong team. Um, that's just a huge performance for Kai, and I, I mean, good luck to him. You know, this hopefully can launch him even further. Yeah, he's actually a churchy old boy where I teach and coach right now, so it's really good to see his progression. He kind of does get hidden away yeah. over there in America, and uh, yeah. as I've as I've heard, if they head over there, they tend to do the races and compete in American things. So great to have him back. He's a very loyal man, so to see him there, I wasn't surprised. But he's, you know, he was just coming out of the cross country season for America too, so that must have done wonders for him. I do hear Ellie too is one that definitely trains over hills in, in her particular, like in long runs. Uh, uh, particularly as well. Yeah, but where she lives too, down the surf coast, you know, there's lots yeah. of them around that Anglesey area. So she'd be very attuned to that. And you'd really needed those skills. And, and yeah, once again, you know, thinking of it from a coaching perspective, if you weren't prepared and the ones that didn't prepare properly for the course, they're the ones who would have struggled. Yes, absolutely. Now let's get to, to you, Tim, because you've you've held a few different roles and titles over the years. And uh, even right now, you've got a, a handful of things going on. So are you happy to talk briefly about what your roles are right now and how that's kind of changed in the last few years? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll sort of say I'm one of the luckiest men in, in athletics in, in the country because um, my job is sort of written, is written around me and around my personality. And my, my full-time job is with Athletics Victoria. So my role there has recently changed slightly. So my role there has been for recreational running for probably the last six or seven years. And that's been driving the growth of recreational running clubs and recreational running membership in Victoria. Uh, and alongside that now, I'm fully responsible for coach education in Victoria. I was just doing facilitation for the recreational running courses in Victoria, but now with a bit of a shake up of athletics Victoria, I've now taken over the management of both the athletic stream and the recreational running stream with coaching. So we're trying to sort of get that rocking and rolling because obviously post-COVID, um, where Victoria is now fully on the go and anyone who now comes back down to Melbourne after the COVID break will see that this city is now getting very vibrant again. And uh, that's in yeah. all aspects. And we're just trying to get the world of Melbourne rolling. Uh, and that leads me to another one of my major roles, which is uh, working for the Melbourne Marathon, where I'm, I think my title sort of sits around something like a competition director. And my role with the Melbourne Marathon, sorry, the Nike Melbourne Marathon Festival is to look after the elites. That's one of the, the buzz parts of my job, looking after the elite program. Also to look after the pace group leaders and recruit the paces, which are such a visible part of the Melbourne Marathon Festival. Uh, I look after the preferred starts. Um, you know, so I'm the man who say, says yay or nay if you want a preferred start in Melbourne, and, which is actually quite a time-consuming job, that one, when you get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications. And I also uh, look after the training series as well. So basically anything to do with the people, uh, that's my role at the Nike Melbourne Marathon Festival and I absolutely love it. Yeah, definitely got your hands busy. You know, the Melbourne Marathon is one heard about quite frequently in, in Brisbane and, and uh, attended to as well, uh, along with probably the Gold Coast Marathon. So what, in your mind, what kind of sets aside the, 
Melbourne Marathon to others? How is it unique or one that uh, you, you promote over others? Well, I think this is what we're going to see. Both Gold Coast and Melbourne are very complementary to each other. The timing for a start, also the the staff, the staff that we are, we've got great relationships. You know, sad to see Cam leave uh, Gold Coast this year, but you know, yeah. Cam Hunt did such a great job with that event. But also, you've got Ryan McDonald, who's been there forever, doing a similar role to me. And we actually, we've got a lot of cohesion with that event, and we work well together. Uh, Melbourne is what we're trying to pitch. Melbourne is now. It's the marathon by Australians for Australians. It's very much. We have a much higher Australian focus with our event than some of the other marathons because we are a private company that runs this. We're not run by state government funding. Uh, and so as a, as a result, we're trying to get a lot of bang for our buck with the elite program. And we find that we can spend a hell of a lot on internationals and bringing internationals here. But do they really deliver? And what's the, what's the legacy or the outcome for Australians? And we find, or our view is that what we want to do is make Melbourne a real go-to event for, for Australian runners. And if you have a look at their winners list over the years, you know, people like Sinead, yeah. um, you know, Virginia Maloney, it goes right back, Liam Adams, they've all won this. Those people don't get that opportunity if, say, they go to Sydney because it's on that majors list. And because Sydney's on the majors list, they have to bring out X number of you know, internationals at X level or else they can't keep their platinum status of what they've got. We have much greater determination as to who we bring here. And we prefer to put money into Australians and promote them and give them opportunities, number one, for a payday, but also for some level of prestige and, uh, and exposure in the press. And Melbourne, I think this year we're going to take that to a new level once again. So we're already having some planning meetings about how do we make it even more of an Australian event? How do we incentivise Melbourne, Melbourne oh, sorry, Australians to come to Melbourne to run the marathon as opposed to other choices that they may have, which includes other uh, races within Australia, but also other races around the world. We want them to come here because we've also proven they can run fast in Melbourne. It's not a yeah. slow course. Yeah. You know, the conditions are pretty good and the course is a beautiful course. Uh, and people can actually run fast. So why, you know, if we give them financial incentives uh, to do Melbourne, I, I'm hoping that we're going to see some pretty decent uh, fields in the years to come. Yeah, and generally good weather too, hey? Generally. Uh, gen we're talking Melbourne here, so you yeah. don't, don't know what you're going to get in Melbourne. <laughs> I so, love how the Victorians talk about the uh, Gold Coast often being too hot. You know, when Brisbane, yeah. uh, Brisbane talk about a winter and Gold Coast being absolutely perfect. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but yet again, you know, us Victorians love the Gold Coast Marathon because it's that <laughs> July breakaway from the gloom and gloom of Melbourne. And it is a really well-run event too. And as a coach, I encourage, you know, the vast majority of my runners I actually coach will be going to Gold Coast because there's so many, you know, they could be doing the marathon, the half marathon, the 10K. I don't care. It's just a great event for them to be part of. Yeah, so guess, that and Melbourne yeah. become two focus events for us. Yeah, I guess you get, well, you get the touristy thing for both, Gold Coast particularly, but more of a coastal feel in that route out there and then Melbourne, yeah. the uh, the sites of the city. So, um, yeah, good luck to you there yeah. with the Melbourne and it, it definitely seems to be booming. Hey, Tim, a little bit about you before we go ahead. Are you happy to sort of share about uh, things around your family and, uh, you know, kids, married, anything like that? Yeah, um, father of five, but I don't see much of them because most of them are up in Brisbane. I've got four of them, including Nick, my son. You probably come across Nick at some stage. Uh, he's he, he's quite a he's, he's completed the uh, the park run alphabet challenge already, Nick. So he's even got his head and his uh, cues and all that. So 
So Nick's up in Boozy. He's doing quite a lot of running and um, quite proud of what he's doing. I've got, you know, uh, three other sons up there and I've got one son in Melbourne. Um, they're all adults. They're all mature, you know, and I'm sort of yeah. getting on in age now. And I've uh, got a couple of grandchildren as well. So it's, it's good to see the family booming. So, yeah, currently leading the single life in Melbourne. So, you know, in post-COVID and... Uh, but with my sort of line of work, leading a single life is the easiest way to go because I'm travelling now a lot again and the the, risk or the constraints of my work or the, the necessities of what I need to be doing, I need a lot of flexibility in life uh, to do work events, particularly the AV job because a lot of my work is weekend work with uh, events or coaching courses and the travel as well. And travel is that, you know, like this trip to Darwin that I'm currently doing, uh, it just eats into a fair bit of time. Okay, and in Melbourne, which suburb are you based in? I'm right next to Albert Park Lake. Yeah. Uh, so at the moment, Perfect. putting up with the, the construct of the Formula One Grand Prix circuit, which is an absolute pain in the backside. But anyway, we've got it for another 30-odd years, apparently. So uh, you know, better get used to it. It's not going anywhere soon. But uh, yeah, so I live, uh, I work at Albert Park, obviously, at the uh, Lakeside Stadium. Training's all based around the town or Albert Park Lake, so I'm within five minutes of everything, which is a great place to be. So just right down the Queen, Queens Road in, in sort of central Melbourne, great spot. Yeah, I've seen a few photos and videos you've put up uh, in various spaces, Strava and Instagram, things like that. Definitely a great training area. Yeah, no, we're, we're very lucky, particularly with Albert Park, because when you look at my coaching, when you boil it down, my specialty is sort of, you know, adult females who are 10K half marathon marathon runners. And that facility that we have at Albert Park, when it's not in Grand Prix mode, is a brilliant facility for training, but also the tan track, Olympic Park, yeah. uh, the River Park trials. You know, we've got a really good environment in Melbourne, and particularly being in that inner sort of circle around the CBD, uh, it is a great place to train and, and for runners to thrive. And um, you know, yes, we have to go through some fairly cold months, uh, particularly in the Gold Coast lead up or the early lead up to Melbourne. Mm. There could be very chilly mornings out there on the bike because the girls are running around. Yeah. Uh, even three pairs of gloves I found aren't enough some mornings. You're absolutely frozen out there on the bike. Uh, but it works. And you know, you've just got to look at the scoreboard of uh, the results we're getting out of the squad and certainly it, it works. So we're, we're in a very good situation where we are in Melbourne. Hey, mates, and uh, professional athletes aside, is Crosby Crew still happening? It yeah, certainly is. Yeah, yeah. look, um, it was an interesting piece during COVID. Uh, COVID was very testing and trying for us Melbourneans, obviously. And for a while there, we went uh, when in and out of lockdown, sort of coming out of lockdown, we went. Uh, our, our basic model's always been made at the tan track and primarily our big nights, Tuesday night, you know, six o'clock Tuesday night, we could have anywhere between 80 and 100 people turn up for a training session. Wow. So it's big and boisterous. It's really good. It's been like that for many, many years. COVID sort of rocked us around a little bit. The numbers dropped uh, because uh, a portion of our market used to be people who worked in the Melbourne area and then would come to training on their way home. You know, they might live at Glenmore Averley or you know, a bit further out, but they'd come to training on their way home. That suits them really well. With work from home arrangements, we've seen a lot of that dissipate and there's not so much of that factor. And a lot of our sort of base membership now are those who live probably within 5K of Melbourne. Uh, CBD, and that's more around sort of that St Kilda, Paran, Balaclava, South Yarra area. That's where we get a lot of our runners from, um, and and even in CBD Melbourne, Docklands, that sort of area. Um, so we're seeing that sort of generation of twenty five to thirty five year olds becoming quite strong, uh, and we have lost a few of them. We're doing the, uh, the commute, commute to Melbourne and commute back home because work from home is uh, becoming so common. Yeah, is that quite a mixed group in terms of uh, pace? Like, is, is it very much a recreational group or is there any kind of performance side to the group? There is. We are a recreational running club. 
um, but we definitely have a performance side to it. And uh, and in some ways, that's because success breeds success. So obviously, you know, yeah. having Sinead Diver in the group for a while and then moving on now, we've got the likes of, you know, Rachel McGuinness and uh, Simone Brick, uh, Jess Chase and Deb Bruce. Uh, you know, Kirsten Ball went out and out won the Port Ferry Marathon this morning. So she's on the way back into ultras. She's the former World 100K champ. So we do have that performance side as well. But what I like to say about our performance side is that we develop them from within. I don't poach anyone from anywhere. Um, people come to our group and then we find their talent through the group. And that's the most successful part or the most probably fulfilling part of our model is that we're not out there actively trying to get runners to run with us. We find that they drift into our group. We provide such a good environment for them, particularly these mature females, and then the, the rest is history. You, know, you look at Rachel McGuinness going from the 306 marathon to the 234 marathon in the space of yeah, 18 months, I think it yeah. was, um, and then being on the sides of being selected for the game. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty huge. Hey, speaking of performance, let's get to your running PVs as an athlete in your prime. Happy for me to read them out. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's probably a few gaps in there, but uh, it's a long time ago, Ollie. Yeah, so 1500, um, this is what I was probably most impressed with is your 346. So 346, yeah. you'd probably know better than I. Like, where, where would that sit all time in Australia? Would oh, it be anywhere near the top 50 of all time? No, not now, not now. Yeah. Um, similar to the, the Super Shoe revolution in road racing, the Super Shoe um, revolution in track racing is changing the dynamic a lot. Uh, in fact, I heard something yesterday in America, they're going to stop tracking the sub four minute uh, mile performances because there's just too many coming. Now, this year, apparently, there's been something like 60 sub four minute miles in America in the first two months of the year, where there used to be only 10 to 20 for a whole year. So we're seeing that dynamic change. So back when I ran 346 in 1991, that was good enough to get me into the national final in Brisbane, by the way. This, uh, on the Brisbane track, I ran the 346. Oh, right. Uh, and I was a, a national finalist that year. Uh, and for me, though, that was, I suppose, the pinnacle or culmination of my career because when I started running when I was probably 18, 19, all I wanted to do was run a sub-40 minute 10K. That was my whole aim as a runner. I just wanted to be a sub-40 minute 10K. Uh, and then I actually drifted into marathons. So I was running marathons at the age of 20. So next month or the month after is the 40th anniversary of my first marathon. I was hoping to go back and run that marathon in Canberra this year, but unfortunately injuries have got the best of me because I started to run track again. Um, so my career to get to a national finals in 1500 was not the norm. I was not a junior superstar. I was not. Co I was never coached. I was always self-coached. And to actually make the final of the nationals in a pretty good era, that's that, that nationals won by Simon Doyle, who was the Australian record holder for a long, long time. Um, it was just a wow moment for me. Shit, I've actually made the Australian final. I'm in the top 12. Wow. And for a self-coached yeah. guy with four, four or five kids, it was a pretty big deal, actually. Um, and I suppose in many ways that set a lot of my coaching philosophies up as well about, you know, believe in yourself, never underestimate what you can achieve from relatively modest beginnings. And you don't need to be a junior superstar to actually go on and be a good runner. So that, I did that probably about the age of 29 or 30 in an era where most people retired by that age from the sport and from athletics, you're gone from the sport, but I was still going. Yeah, it's a solid time, 3.46. We're even seeing, you know, 17, 18-year-old boys get close to that or that high oh, 3.40s well, mark. And there's, you know, yeah. we've, had, we've had a fair few in that 3.40, 50 range. But once you're sort of yeah. hitting below 3.40, that, that's when you, you, you're putting your name up on the, uh, you know, yeah. in the limelight for Australia, right? Well, that's right. We had Cam Myers as a 16-year-old mate who called this race yes. a few weeks ago, ran a 3.40. Uh, yeah. So, and that's remarkable at 16. Uh, and he is definitely a talent. 
But yeah, in comparison for those who don't know in this land, but the, the, the conversion of the 1500 to the miles, you can run a 343, 1500, you're about a four minute mile or a sub four minute So that's about the conversion. So I wasn't quite there. But yet again, if you give me the super shoes, Ollie, I would have been there for sure. <laughs> now, this is the sadness of it all. It you look is. at my TVs and think, if only, if only we had the shoes back then, because I wear them now and I know what they're worth. They are worth a lot, even to yeah. a 60 year old like me. Those shoes are valuable, extremely valuable. Yeah, we hear about a lot on the road too. So your experience with the, yep. the track spikes too and their development is uh, certainly significant. Yep, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And it is, we're going to see more and more of it. And as yeah. I said, yeah, because, you know, like athletics week in the US is now one of the kind of track sub fours, it shows you how times are changing because it's having such more, you know, more prevalent. Um, but that's that's you know it's like comparing uh, Cinder's tracks to a synthetic track as well. So what John Landy ran in the nineteen fifties a lot different to what I was running on in the nineteen nineties. So yeah, you have always have progression, uh, and you can't deny it. And you know, all you can do is through the fact that you didn't have it when you were competitive. Yeah. Okay. Moving ahead, the three thousand eight sixteen. Your ten k you gave me was thirty two fourteen. Was that on the track? Yeah. Uh, no, that was a road one. Uh, that was the old Caulfield race course, uh, Athletes Victoria 10, 000, or 10K road champs. Um, the other thing, you know, there's a lot of subjectiveness about that one because a lot of people think that short course was short because that's in the days before GPS. So there was no accountability from the race organisers to provide an accurate course. So who knows? Who knows? How was it measured? I suppose... Uh, would have been done with a measuring wheel, or in some cases, they used to measure these things with a car odometer. Back wow, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And now we're much more accountable in the era of GPSs. You've got to make sure, you know, because I do course measurement as well for Athletics Victoria, you've got to make sure your road courses are bang on or else you are just going to cop it on social media. Yeah, or over here, just slightly over the distance yeah. to make sure they're running it. Yeah, should I? Yeah. yeah, if you're wearing a GPS, you're never going to, if, you, if your GPS reads 10.00, uh, that's a short course. That is a short course. Yeah, yeah you want it to be 10.2 thereabouts, uh, and then you know you're on an accurate one. If it reads 9.98, yeah, you're on a short course. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, your marathon, 2.32, where was that and when? That was Melbourne. That was, gee, I reckon that might have been around 1991, yet again, or 92. Um, and that was a Frankston to Melbourne course. Uh, and that was on a cool late May day, bit of rain, um, bit of wind. It wasn't an ideal day, but it was it was the old Frankston to Melbourne. And, uh, I ended up running a lot of that by myself and just plowed out at two thirty two. Yeah, excellent. Hey, let's uh, let's backtrack a bit to to you as a kid. Like where you were born, your, your background, family, parents, <laughs> primary school. Like what where the influences came from that led to Tim right now. So how how did those earlier days look for you, and, and why do you think you're in this position now? Considering, Jeez, I've never never been asked that one. That's, <laughs> now I've got to be very introspective. Uh, my my father was a primary school headmaster. I was born in a beautiful little town called Beaufort, which is sort of between Ballarat and Ararat. Uh, I rarely sort of go back there. Uh, but being a primary school headmaster, he was actually on relief a lot. So we would, you know, within six months of me being born, we moved. Another two or three years later, again, we moved. Another year after that, we moved. We just kept moving. Um, so it was a very transitory existence uh, as a child because Dad was continually you know, getting shifted to different schools. Um, the longest we ever stayed anywhere, I think, was about four years or maybe five years. So as a kid, um, yeah, we were always on the move. And um, I was always, I suppose, 
my focus around running was I used to get in trouble a lot because I was a very lazy student. You know, and Dad expected a lot out of us, and um, I was lazy and just really didn't care about school. So I was often in trouble, and when I was in trouble, I'd just go running. I'd just run away. Uh, and I think there was one day when I was about 14 or 15, I ran 32K uh, just to get out of the house for a few hours. Uh, so I always had that little bit of uh, endurance. Uh, I played a bit of AFL as well, and I enjoyed playing AFL. But uh, when I was about 18, 19, I was still only about 56KG. So you can imagine I was never going to make it in the AFL. Um, I was reasonably skilled, but I just didn't have the body for it. And I think in many ways running found me. Uh, I started working in 1980 at the Reserve Bank in Melbourne, that was my first job. And there was actually a running club there called the Midday Milers. So, and that was the majority of those guys were older guys in their 30s, 40s, 50s who were running marathons. So that's why at the age of 20, I ran a marathon because um, I was just with the guys and that's what they were training for. And I just wanted to be part of the group. And I thought, you're not a real runner unless you run a marathon. So at the age of 20, I you know, drove myself up to Canberra, put myself through the horrendous act of running 42 kilometers unprepared. Uh, I ran three hours 25, I think, for the first one. Uh, it hurt. Uh, I learned a lot. And then in October of that year, I ran Melbourne and I ran two hours 42. So I learned a hell of a lot. And yet again, that shapes me as a coach, I think. Uh, yeah. Continuous learning through my own experiences and never wanting to feel that pain again that I felt in that first marathon. Or that so, and who were you so, training with at that early point after school? Were you running solo or with a group or any yeah, kind of coach? Yeah, had, no, I've never been coached. I was never coached. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was always, um, you know, pick it up from newspaper articles or read a book um, and then learn through experience. But I had a few guys to run with at the Reserve Bank, but uh, I didn't do athletics properly until a few years after that. I think it was about 24 or 25 when I first joined an athletics club. Uh, and even when I went to that athletics club, the only coach there was a sprints coach. So I wasn't coached either. So I was still doing my middle distance running as a self-coached runner. So there was a bit of a different dynamic when I started to go up the ranks a bit because obviously going against guys who ran in squads and had pretty good coaches in Melbourne. Yeah, right. So what was your first sort of race where you felt like you were starting to become a bit more competitive out there? Any um, that uh, come to mind? I think when I ran the 242 in Melbourne, remember when I first started running, all I wanted to do was break 40. Then suddenly I'm running 350 for a marathon in 1983. And I thought, oh, actually, I'm not bad at this. Uh, but unfortunately, it was a bit of an inverse career because I'd started that marathon. And I'd certainly, and back then, you know, the Army Ultras were things like the Sydney to Melbourne. So I wasn't going to go in that direction. And uh, so I knew I was half decent and I, I did a few good marathons. I got my time down, obviously, by another 10 minutes over the course of you know, a few years. But it wasn't until uh, probably about five or six late, years later that um, a friend of mine was coached. Uh, he watched me run a track race at uh, Olympic Park and he just said to me, why the hell are you wasting your time with marathons where you're actually a miler? I thought, well, I've never thought about that. I've, you know, I've, I enjoy doing marathons. And he said, no, you, you're actually a your movement patterns show that you're a mile runner. So 1,500, 800 it was. And then when I started to concentrate more on that, then I found that, yeah, I was actually quite good at it. And I actually enjoyed the training. You know, nothing like those 400-metre reps, reps where you're a lactic nightmare by about number five and you just got to keep on going. And yeah. I actually did enjoy that thrive on it. And yet again, being self-coached, just trying to work out what sessions worked for me. And then because we have such a competitive track, or well, back then we had a thing called State League. So every Thursday night, I'd get to run against some of the top guys in the country on the track over 800 
1500 5k i've been racing my killer and scammel and um you know all those guys it was great and so, so that sort of took me from one level to another because you had to try and be competitive against those guys so what point do you think was your peak in all of that and what training were you doing monday to sunday to actually get to that level <laughs> <laughs> I look back, I've still got manual diaries from back then, Ollie. And, yeah. and I do encourage everyone to have a manual diary because this world of um, the cloud and online, you do lose a lot of that history of your own personal history. But looking back at my diaries, I think I sort of peaked around 1991, 1992. And that's when I peaked both at the marathon and the PB, but also at the 1500. So, and one of the big changes there, remarkably, I gave up doing cross country season with Athletics Victoria. And when I went and started to do the um, boundary umpiring in a local lead down on the Morning Peninsula. So I was running the boundary, which is a two-hour fartlek session every Saturday. <laughs> Combine that with my track work and with the distance. I was probably running in peak on track. I was running, say, 80 to 90K a week, which is not a lot. Uh, but that boundary umpiring for a couple of seasons set me up to be stronger than I'd ever been before. And when it came to running the track and holding the speed for the 1500, um, it just made an enormous distance, uh, difference. So I didn't have to be doing long, long distances. Uh, although I'd already done that too, I suppose when you look at my marathon career, some of my marathon training is different to the norm, as in that as a marathon runner, my longest long runs, and this is controversial, people argue about it, but I go out and run 44, 46, 48. Wow. Uh, it's my training as a training run in the marathon. Because the reason, the rationale for that, I and mean, you've got to get it back to working on your strengths and weaknesses. Because I was a good 1500 meter runner, I had speed. What I didn't have over the marathon was endurance. So what did I need to work on? Endurance. That's why I'd go out and run well over 40K and try. I wouldn't do it all the time. I'd only be once or twice. But that then gave me the endurance and the energy systems to last out 42K. Because for those marathoners of you out there, how good is it when you actually race the whole way rather than just survive the marathon? And that's a really yeah. powerful feeling. If you're coming into that last uh, four or five K and you're still racing, you're not just hanging on for survival. That's a very, very powerful feeling. And the only way I could get that is by doing the over-distance long runs, which some of my runners still do. Um, you know, like Sinead is doing that. Uh, Rachel certainly doesn't. I know Sinead still does it. He's, he's now Australia's best marathoner. Um, but it was certainly her breeding ground was doing the 42s or 44s as part of preparation for a marathon. And what about the quality stuff? So any speed work and tempo work in there on a, on a Tuesday, yeah, Thursday or Friday? How did that work? Yeah, well, probably for me, it was scattergun approach, Ollie. I, I had no, this is why, you know, when you first mentioned looking back at my training, I chuckled when I look, when I look at my training diaries, I laugh out loud because it was just, it was, I wasn't coached. So I had no plan. There was no overarching plan. I just knew that I had to get ready for this event. And, but compared to what I do now as a coach, well, I'm much more systematic with my coaching and there's a lot more structure. And the key structures, the way we do marathon training, where I've had pretty good success is, yes, long, long runs. And this whole concept around tempo running, uh, which we probably would have discussed when we did the course back in Brizzy, that you know, if you want to learn how to run three and a half minute Ks or 42K, when do you practice that? And if you're not doing that in some of your tempo runs, then you've got rocks in your head because the gun goes on race day and you don't know what three and a half minute Ks uh, feels like because quite often in your speed work, you're going quicker and in your endurance or your absorption work, you're going slower. So a big factor in the way we train is understanding what race pace is all about and understanding how you know, drilling into people, uh, how they actually run that pace and sustain that pace. 
Uh, and in many ways, the way when I look back on my training, the only time I used to do that was uh, I was working, still working in the Reserve Bank at that time, and I had a friend who lived in Burwood, and it was about 16k out of Melbourne. I'd drive to his place, and a group of us would run to work in the morning, uh, so 16k nice and easy in the morning, and then I'd run back home the same way in the afternoon, but by myself, and that was my tempo run because I wanted to get home quick. I'll be running as fast as I could at <laughs> tempo. So inadvertently, I was doing that without ever having really a structure about it. But now uh, when I'm coaching my marathon runners, we have a lot of structure about that. And we really understand the process. And we found that, that process, the majority of cases, works quite well. Hey, I was just going to get into the long runs and how, what's your approach with them, particularly leading into a marathon, say the start of a block versus getting closer to the event? How... How do you incorporate that race pace is, I guess, the question there. Yeah, look, every coach has got their own way of doing this and their own methodologies or beliefs. And so what I'm not sort of saying is what I think is prescriptive or the right way to do it, but it's my experience and how in the majority of cases I handle it with my runners. Uh, we will find that, say, in a marathon campaign, there is a graduated increase in the distance um, culminating generally about four or five weeks before in an over-distance run, which could be 42, 44, 46, depending on the experience. Um, say for one of my high achievers who's running their debut marathon, that might have been capped at 36 or 38. So I had a few last year that debuted at uh, either, well, mainly Gold Coast or Melbourne. Um, and so I wasn't going to throw them in the deep end and have them doing the over-distance instead of first go, even though they were highly accomplished, you know, well under three-hour marathoners as females. Um, with the race pace element of it, Ollie, what we tend to do is there'll only be once or twice during that campaign that we throw race pace into their long runs, and that will only be for a portion of no more than six or you know, usually about five or six K. And generally that'll be towards the end of one of those longer runs. So it might be, say, a 38 k where they might pick up the pace to race pace from, say, 31k to 35 or 36 or something like that, and then they ease it back down again. The reason why we don't do full-on, as some others do, or they might do 10k easy, 10k hard, 10k easy, uh, we don't do as much of that or trying to run a really fast, long run in the lead-up is we're doing that usually on our Thursday sessions anyway. So we're not yeah. double-dipping. Yeah. There's no need to. If we're doing, say, an 18k tempo at faster than race pace on a Thursday, you don't need to go out on Sunday again to trash yourself because all you're going to be doing there is digging a bit of a hole, which you may never come out of. So you've got to think about that adaptation of the body. But yes, you will throw this work at them where they're trying to simulate racing, but you can't do it over and over and over again uh, all without sufficient rest or else the body doesn't absorb and adapt. So you've got to try and get that formula right. And I'm not saying that this is the only way to train for a marathon. It's not. There are plenty of successful ways of training for a marathon, but this is a methodology that in general that I will use. And in general, it's had a fairly good strike rate. Yeah. So if we talk about like those blocks, so to speak, like, you know, four by 5K within half marathon or marathon training, is, is that anything that you use or think about in terms of coaching and training? Yeah, because as, as, you know, I think I'm a reasonably good coach and, and adept to change. So, yes, I've had um, instances where we are changing and morphing, and this is what you've got to do as a coach. You don't say, well, this is the formula, we're always going to use it. So even in our most recent campaigns, and actually I did a bit of work with Anna Kelly last year before Gold Coast, where she ran 236, I think, 
Um, and she was coached by Dave Ridley. So I was looking and learning at what Dave was throwing with Anna. I was riding the bike with Anna because uh, Dave couldn't make those sessions in support. And they were totally different types of sessions. And I've adapted some of those in some forms into my training as well. Uh, and a very new session that we've just brought in recently is three minutes on, three minutes off um, with Simone Brick, uh, who's training for the 85K Old Ghost in a few weeks. But uh, Ricky brought that one to me. And initially I said, I don't like the sound of that because I think the three minutes off is too far too long. And she's explained the reasoning about it. And uh, so initially she was doing six, three on, three off. We then went to eight, then went to 10. And then we started to, you know, four on, two off. Um, but once I understood the rationale and once I saw the um, the outputs, because not only was Simone doing it, I had one session, I think seven girls jumped in and did it together. And I just saw this really dyna great dynamic out of it. And it was also very... Um, it's variable because I could have some some of the girls who weren't quite up to say uh, Jess's level or Kate Avery's level who could jump in and do that session, but instead of doing six, they would do five, or instead of doing seven, they might do five or six instead of eight. And you had that variability where you've got a very cohesive group um, who could do the same session and work together and get that really strong sense of the groupiness out of it. And I just thought this is a really wonderful session. So that has now become part and parcel of what we do. And yet, 10 weeks ago, I'd never heard of it before. There you go. Always learning. Always learning. And morphing. And not saying, oh, no, we can't do that, Simone, because this is Tim Crosby's way of doing it. It's either my way or the highway. Um, Simone, I learned a lot from Simone because, obviously, she lives on that edge of doing the ultras, the trial running, the mountain running, yeah. which is not my yeah. forte. I was a track runner um, and a part-time marathon. So someone like Simone, that you know, we experiment. Kirsten Bull is another one. We experiment a lot because she's an ultra runner, 100K world champ. You know, Australia's only ever had one of those, and that's KB. Uh, you can imagine how much I learned from her or how much we learned together as we went forward towards those 100K campaigns. And, and Tim, what about, uh, you know, women versus men in terms of coaching? Is there anything that you do differently for women, even mentally or physically? And I ask that honestly, from even a biological point of view, is there any differences yeah. between coaching the ladies? I, it's an interesting one too, Ollie, because I think I'm probably better at coaching females. I don't know why. Maybe I'm more in tune. Um, but you've got to be, with the girls, you've got to be, I don't know, really sensitive to them and their changes and their their cycles and all that. And I'm very upfront uh, and I do this in coach education too. I say to the guys, do you talk about periods with your girls? And some of them, you can't talk about that. Well, yes, you can. Um, and if you're going to be coaching and coaching uh, women who, who need to be treated the way you know, they should be treated to so they respond properly, you've got to be attuned to all those sort of things. You've got to have those discussions. And quite often we find that when you raise a subject as a male coach to a female, they're actually quite relieved that you want to talk about it. Uh, so you have to be in tune with the differences, between, especially as a man, uh, between you know, what the cycle, how that can impact their training. Yeah. Uh, whereas with guys, it's just much more down the middle. It's very simple. It's very um, prescribed model. You know, um, I find the... The psyche work with men is a little bit different. Um, sometimes they're going to thrive more on being challenged. They might be thrived more on, yeah. on you know, um, being thrown really hard sessions. With the girls, you know, well, I must say with my girls, they don't mind a hard session though. And I'm not saying that women do not want hard sessions because I find that our girls can actually survive the hard sessions better than the boys do. And that's nothing against the boys, but I think it's just something about the way the girls prepare both mentally and physically and particularly get the pacing right. Girls seem to have this inherent 
absolutely. And this is what we're seeing at the top levels of Australian marathoning at the moment. Our girls are well ahead of the guys. There's no doubt about it. Why? I don't know. There's just something about the way that they train themselves and they're much higher at the international level than the guys are. And uh, Tim, we've seen the, the the male and female record broken in the marathon in the last six months. So, and that took a long time to get there, though. So, any yeah. re- any reason you think behind that such a big gap until we got it, and and the current state of marathon running and where it's heading? Yeah, well, you're talking about absolute legends in the sport who held those records. So, Benita, uh, two twenty two, no super shoes. Benita would have been sub two twenty for super shoes. There's no doubt about it. The quality of that woman. Look at her record. The only world cross country champ we've ever had. She was she was a super, she was one in the generation. Um, so it's taken now. You know, I'm not trying to put Sinead's performance down at all, but Sinead did have the assistance of performance enhancing shoes which are probably worth a few minutes. Sinead, though, is remarkable, remarkable. 45 years of age, reaching yeah. a peak 13 years now into her career, ran a time that I actually didn't think she could get. I thought that 224, 225 was about it. But boy, she blew that out of the... And she looked so good doing it, too. And you look at the splits, she was right on target. Um, for the men, you know, you had Dika Seller and Monaghetti as the two standouts for decades. And they were, the, you know... Get context on this. When Deeks ran that time, he was the best in the world, basically. When Monas was running his times, he was almost the best in the world, arguably the best in the world. Um, so now you've got Brett going above that time, but where does he rank internationally? Um, nowhere near the best in the world. So it's been taking us a while to yeah, get Yeah, well, there. where would he be? And it shouldn't. Oh, God knows. Yeah, probably lucky to be top 50. Um, I was thinking, I was thinking around 50, definitely top yeah, 100, but yeah, still that's a far yeah. way down from those guys, right? Well, that's right. They were the, they were the leaders, and you know, yeah. Dix was the world record holder for quite a substantial period of time in basically shoes that were slippers. Okay. And what shoes did, would he, he actually run in, Tim? Do you know? Uh, Dix was wearing Addy Stars, um, which I actually had a pair back in nineteen eighty three, yeah, eighty four. Uh, but, but they were like slippers. You know, there's just nothing. They were a traditional old racing flat, really low profile, light materials, no cushioning. Yeah, when you're hitting 34, uh, 30, 35K, you're just slapping on that ground. You've got no propulsion forward. It's just slap, slap, slap. So Deeks was, you know, remarkable to be running the times that he did uh, in the shoes. And, you know, he was the world leader. And, and Monas again, you know, Monas was the same. You know, uh, he, he's probably the shoes that Monas was in. He had the MRIs and things like that. They were coming through probably five, six years after Deeks, and they were a little bit more cushioned, uh, but certainly nothing like with the carbon plates or the, um, the stack height that current shoes have got. And have you noticed a difference recovery-wise too, even within the week, oh, yeah. running speed sessions in the super shoes? Yeah, definitely. But the thing is too, Ollie, I don't want them wearing the super shoes all the time. You build a dependence on it. So I prefer them to slip out of those and, and you know, have that special feeling of when you put them on at race day. And you know, even at my level, I will only wear them when I go to park run. So I slip them on at Maribyrn on park run and I feel a million bucks and um, because it is that special feeling. And you've got to be careful that you don't sort of... Um, dull that feeling down by over-wearing them. I had a guy from, who I know from um, from Brunei who said, oh, I'm getting a bit of a sore knee because I'm running in super shoes every day. And I said, oh, God, that. Well, number one, he must have a pretty big budget uh, to run them every <laughs> day. And, it's, and he said, oh, should I go back to the GT2000? I said, for God's sake, get back to your GT2000s. You, know? you, know, you can't run in these things every day. It, it, it you know, reduces the impact of when you do put them on. And plus, we're still waiting to see, you know, potentially what injuries may be coming from them from overuse. Yeah, yeah. We don't know yet. The jury's out. 
so is there a premise to running flatter shoes that might uh you know physically prepare and train the, the muscles like the calves a bit more so than yep. the super shoes yeah because you are losing a lot of that proprioceptiveness of the foot touching the ground you know we're so separated from the ground these days and that's a good thing you know just doing this course before i've had them out there in bare feet and the that joy of being in bare feet there's nothing like it quite often at the end of sessions during summer in melbourne the shoes come off and i like like them to do you know a couple of laps of the oval in, in bare feet just to get the feel for it again yeah, yeah, we are losing that yeah i think unfortunately apps like strava are making it difficult because runners you know want to sort of put out sessions out there that are, that are quick but are not willing to face those challenges that yeah. will actually yeah. in essence improve them come race time correct and and even you know that's yeah that pull about social media and strava is, is huge and even i get sucked into it unfortunately um yeah you don't want something going on strava that you're not proud of uh, and also it's that mental side of if i've got person x who needs to be averaging 334 per k in the tempos and suddenly they're averaging 338 because they're just not on that day it's that whole psychological thing and if you then tell them oh don't wear your super shoes and they go back to running 342s net effect it's the same. They're still having a bloody good session, but mentally it's not. Oh, I'm going backwards. You've got to deal with that. Yeah, and that's where yeah. it becomes sort of a self-defeating sort of prophecy that um, yeah, you've got to wear these things all the time to keep your performance level up in training. Performance level in training, yes, it does indicate where you're going to go, but it's not the be-all end-all. Performance indicators from racing and what you really should be getting worried about. Yeah, that's great. Hey, what's, what does the future look like for you, Tim, the next year or so in terms of coaching and even your own running? What goals do you have? Oh, yeah. Look, with my aborted Canberra Marathon attempt, I'm going to go back to just concentrating on park runs. I actually did myself in, Ollie, because I put the spikes back on. And as a oh, 60 year old, uh, the old I body. I did see this. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> which I loved it. And I ran pretty decent times. Was that a 400 or 800? I did a four and an eight. I ran, yeah. I don't know, it was 64, 66 for the four, and then a 226, 800 with no training whatsoever. I just put the spikes on and ran. And I was pretty happy with that. But uh, then sciatica started to flare up on me. So basically, for my own running, I just want to get back to consistency, being able to do the long runs with the group, um, maintain my strength and conditioning, work with Keyser, which have been, Keyser have just turned my world around in the last couple of years, uh, being regular at, um, you know, with, within their practice and uh, listening to the physios finally. Uh, and this is, get back to actually being able to run as I go into the sort of later stages of life. My coaching, look, I've got some exciting runners and I'm really, you know, I'm in a really good space with coaching right now. Um, the female group is continuing to grow because I think success breeds success and other girls in Melbourne are seeing that there's good stuff happening with us and they want to be part of the part of the action. And I'm happy to bring to develop that group and make it even stronger. Uh, and let's see where it goes. So, you know, Rachel's probably going to run Berlin later in the year or Simone Simone's got some exciting stuff coming up with World Champs. Kirsten's going to get to a, a six-hour track race, which we've never done that before. So for both of that, that's going to be exciting to see how she goes over six hours on the track. Uh, you know, Jess is looking good. Um, you know, Sarah Waters is coming to the group. I've got a really, really, really lovely group going, and I'm just loving um, that vibe that we've got at the moment. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how you go there, Tim. Uh, we're towards the end here, so let's get to uh, – I've got one listener question, then a handful of mine, if that's all right. Yep, go for it. Excellent. Uh, first listener question comes from Brandon Demers. So he's asked you here. I've just lost it. One second. Uh, you've got to pick. So he's asked you to pick the biggest highlight of your coaching or running career. What would it be? Oh, yeah. Look, this could be a little bit. Oh, it's not controversial. I think how often do people 
coach world champions. Um, Kirsten Ball winning the World 100K champs when she came in as an outsider um, in 2016. That was, yeah, that was the these days for me to actually coach a world champion. But also it was more than that. It was a relationship that I'd had with Kirsten for so long. You know, I'd nurtured her from being a one hour, 50 half marathoner, not long off the treadmill to actually being a world champion eight years later. That was a remarkable journey and just so proud of her. Um, and just, uh, it was just fraught with so much nerves and emotion because they were doing a 10 by 10K loop and going into the last 10K, she'd taken the lead, I think, at 58 kilometres. So she had 42K to defend that lead. We didn't expect she'd ever bloody win the thing. Um, and going into that last 10K from 90 to 100, uh, we didn't know much what was going out there, but the girl behind her, I think she was Croatian, she was actually picking up, picking up, picking up. And we thought, she's going to catch her, she's going to catch her. And when KB came around the corner, she's only tiny, but I could see the Australian flag above her. I thought, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, because I actually nearly threw up that day. It's a story I tell in, in Coach Ed, but um, as a coach, in those positions where you've got no control, you can lose control. You know, yeah, you've got yeah. so much control over what they do, but in that last 10 kilometres, I had no control on that outcome. When I finally saw her, um, it was just this huge um, size of it. So that was, that was huge for me. Obviously, getting Sinead to the 225 in Melbourne where she broke the course record, that was great. We really enjoyed it. We, we had a great relationship. And there was that journey, a 32-year-old who'd never run before, to being a 225 marathoner. Um, yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. And then what I'm seeing, that's now permeated through someone like Rachel McGuinness. So I'm seeing a, a similar trajectory at the moment with Rachel. And then yeah, what do you say about Simone Brick? I could go on forever about Simone Brick, but I won't because her ego is already big enough. <laughs> yeah, sounds very special, Tim. Hey, let's get to five of my questions, hey? Yep. Okay. Uh, if you were to pick one location in Victoria to run, like your favourite location, simply for a long run or a jog, you know, not, a, not something fast, where would you pick? The tan track. I love the tan track. Yeah. The tan track changes with the seasons. It's got the hill, it's got yeah. the panel, it's got the shrine. I live next to Albert Park Lake, but it is so boring. Albert Park Lake is so, so boring. The tan track's beautiful. As I said, changes with the seasons. Always seeing great people out there, and I love the tan. Okay. QA versus uh, AV, so Queensland Athletics versus uh, yep. Victoria, or just running in general, Queensland versus Victoria. What do we need to work on to get to the level of Victoria? In, in a few ways, that question works. Oh, I reckon you're getting there. I reckon what QA is doing at the moment is amazing. I really love what Benita's done with um, you know, the, the Queensland running scene and she's leading a lot of it with Dave Pim for support. Uh, you're not that far behind. You look at the groups in Brisbane, you look at the groups in Gold Coast, you look at the high performers coming out of Queensland, um, you know, Louis McAfee and Tim Vincent, mm -hmm. uh, Neil, all those people. Queensland's moving. They are moving. Probably what you just don't have is that sort of more temperate weather where we get that uh, lovely more, you know, uh, winter, to real winters, which are sort of hardening but also strengthening in some way. You've got that consistency of yeah. warmer weather and humidity to deal with. Uh, but I think you know, QA are doing a great job. I think Queensland's on the march and we're seeing that with the results coming through. And I just want to see probably more cohesiveness when it comes to something like the National Cross or the National Marathon Champs or the National Half, stronger Queensland teams there because people will tear each other's eyes out to get into a Victorian team. I don't think we're seeing that yet in Queensland. We will want that. We want people who really want to be in those teams, wear their own colours and represent the state. Absolutely. Hey, uh, biggest running role model growing up and biggest role model now, how are they different or is it the same person? Uh, look, probably 
I didn't have much of a role model. Probably uh, Jim Fix's book, The Complete Book of Running, was something that was yeah. huge for me. Um, so I, um, you know, I followed that and just digested that book like you wouldn't believe, and that shaped a lot of my early running. Uh, role models now, got, uh, I probably look at some of my managers I've had at AV. Um, Glenn Turner was awesome uh, in his period. Got a new guy there now, Matt Duck, and uh, you know, since Matt's come in, you know, it's a to- totally different character, but it's awesome. You know, that we've got a new type of person, and we've got some really exciting stuff about to happen in AV. We've got watch the space and the announcements we're going to make in the next few weeks about things like Zatapec. Um, you know, they're the ones that sort of, I think, give me scope to fly, and I need that. I'm the very uh, you can't micromanage Tim Crosby. I'm impossible to micromanage. <laughs> I need a manager who gives me scope to do what I do and do it well. Um, and that's what someone like Glenn recognised that fairly early. Um, and then Matt is very much the same. Yeah. Okay, Tim, pick one runner right now professionally who's showing the most promise in any level, 1,500 or even 800 up to the marathon, male or female, who would you pick? Well, I'm going to say two, Ollie Hoare. Big fan of Ollie's. Yeah. And I, I really hope he can really go on with it. And, you know, I've said, I'm really biased on this one. I absolutely adore her. Leanne Pompiani. I just, I've just been watching Leanne develop over the last few years. And yesterday, she didn't lose any friends at all. Even though she wasn't the first Aussie to cross the line, the way she went about that race was very Leanne. And I, all credit to her for having a red hot go against the internationals. Didn't work in the end. Doesn't matter. Don't lose friends when you have a red hot go against the FBA. Okay, last question there, Tim, uh, and we'll wrap things up. So, and this this is probably an important question. What what does running actually offer that other sports don't? Why would you why would you run over other sports? You try having a group swim and having a good chat during your group swim doesn't happen. <laughs> all right, uh, it is that it's that camaraderie. That's what I love about it. The camaraderie in the community. Um, it's like any community. You have your weird uncles and crazy cousins and all that. But uh, the community of runners is is something why I do it. The friendships you form, the on lasting, the ongoing, the lifelong friendships and relationships that form out of running. Plus, in the end, it's fitness. You know, you're developing cardio, fitness, um, you know, aerobic fitness. You know, on all levels, you're becoming. You know, and I, I like to think that at my age, that I can hold myself, my body together better than most of my peers. And why is that? I've got forty odd years of running behind me. Um, yeah, still relatively slim, relatively. Um, if I look at a beer, it goes straight onto my belly, obviously, at this yeah. age. But, um, but yeah, it's just being able to live a good, healthy, and honest life. And that's what running is all about. And that community, and the community is what really makes it. Oh, thanks, Tim. You've uh, arranged an hour here for a lunch break to actually talk to me yeah. today on a uh, Sunday in the early afternoon. So uh, thank you very much. And as I started, you're the first official Victorian on here. So we appreciate uh-huh. you spreading the uh, the love of the sport, you know, whether it's in Queensland or Northern Territory, wherever it may be. You've had uh, certainly a lot of experience both uh, as a coach and a runner. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Ollie. Great chatting to you. Excellent. Have a great afternoon, hey? All right. Thanks, that. I'll get back to my class. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, mate. If you enjoyed listening to this interview or the local legend in running podcast please visit spotify give it a rating i'd much appreciate it cheers thank you